Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that now you would, by your Holy Spirit, through your word, help us to understand what you've done for us and what it means to live in your world under your rule. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. And so Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylon and placed them in the treasure house of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. It's all pretty matter of fact, isn't it? Three simple verses from the Old Testament that tell us that one king was at war with another king and there was the plundering of some sacred objects and then the captivity of members of the royal family. And yet these three verses summarise the darkest day in the history of Israel. In these verses we see the collapse of the kingdom of God and the beginning of the exile. But blink and you'll miss it. Because even though it's just three verses, it describes the tragic end to God's rule in his, king, in his promised land, or so it seems. There's a victory of a pagan king over God's king. There's a plundering of God's temple by pagan warriors. And there's the enslaving of the royal family into a foreign land. It is the darkest day in the history of Israel. Because with shattered buildings and shattered bones came shattered hopes. Remember back to King Solomon. Those days when he was the wisest and the wealthiest king in the world and his temple was a wonder of the world. It's all shattered. And those days when God promised Abraham the blessing of land and descendants. Shattered. Because the true king who's been placed on his throne by God has been defeated by the arch enemy. And the precious temple is attacked by marauders and its treasure has been stolen. And the leaders of the next generation are dragged from Jerusalem to a foreign land. And in the aftermath of that tragedy, so many questions arise. But where was God in all of this? And is he weak or is he unloving? Have his promises failed? These are some of the biggest questions about the fall of Jerusalem. But from them come other questions. And that is, how should God's people live when they're in a foreign land? And they've got a foreign religion. And they've got a foreign king. I mean, basically the issue is, should God's people fit in or fight? They were big questions 
for God's people 26 centuries ago, but there's still big questions for us today. Because if God's our king, then why are so many rulers and nations against him? And if we're banned from teaching scripture in schools or from speaking about sexuality in our Christian schools, then does that mean that God has failed? And if not, how should we live when our world is anti-God? Well, it turns out these are issues that are addressed in the book of Daniel, which is one of the favourite books of the Old Testament for so many Christians. And I think that's because Daniel's life in Babylon feels so much like our life today in Australia. His struggles seem so similar to ours, which means his responses will be so important for us today. So we're going to look closely into Daniel to learn a bit more. We're going to spend 12 weeks on the 12 chapters, six of them in this term and, God willing, six of them in the next term. And as we do so, we'll be forced to ask the question, who rules really? When a godless king is on the throne, who rules really? When a pagan ruler bans prayer, who rules really? When it looks like God's failed, who rules really? But what's more, our journey through the book of Daniel is also going to help us understand more and more about the person and mission of Jesus. Because remember when Jesus talked about the Son of Man or the Ancient of Days? He was referring to the book of Daniel. And so the more we understand of this book, the more we'll understand of Jesus' mission and what he's done for us. Let's go back to the first verse. And in the light of all of that, let's look at it afresh. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There are two kings, King Jehoiakim in Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And the reason that this has all happened and the backstory it is, is that Years and years and years, before, for years and years and years, God's people have been told to repent, to turn back to God. And time and time again, they've refused to obey God. And after warning them again and again and again, stop following those idols, stop worshipping other gods, eventually it comes to the point where enough is enough. And the Lord God, the true God, has decided to use a pagan Gentile king to carry out his punishment on his people. We read in verse 2 that the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. And so Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. I wonder if you saw the first five, verse, five words of that verse. The Lord gave him victory. The Lord gave that king that victory. God is not watching from a distance in this disaster. He is intricately involved in every aspect of it. And what's more, it's happening exactly like he said it would. In Jeremiah chapter 25, we learn these things. Let me read a couple of verses out to us. But you would not listen to me, says the Lord. You made me furious by worshipping idols you made with your own hands bringing on yourselves all the disasters you now suffer. And now the Lord of heaven's army says, because you have not listened to me, 
I will gather together all the armies of the north under King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, whom I have appointed as my deputy. I will bring them all against this land and its people and against the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy you and make you an object of horror and contempt and a ruin forever. I will take away your happy singing and laughter. The joyful voices of bridegrooms and brides will no longer be heard. Your millstones will fall silent and the lights in your homes will go out. This entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighbouring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. That's what he said he'd do. And we see here in Daniel that's exactly what he's done. The Lord raised up the Babylonians to destroy God's people. And so in 605 BC, they attacked Jerusalem, taking hostages, stripping the precious items from the temple. And then four years later, the Babylonians returned to Jerusalem, smashing down the temple, executing leaders and deporting wealthy citizens. It's an absolute disaster for God's people. But the Lord God's in control. Because all the evil we're seeing here in Jerusalem was the punishment from God for his own precious people. Those precious people who repeatedly disobeyed him time and time and time again. Now, things were different back then. This is before the time that Jesus walked on earth. But God's heart hasn't changed. The God who sent the destruction of Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem is the same God who will bring the fires of hell upon all who refuse to repent. And just like it was with the warning of the prophet Jeremiah, God warns us to follow Jesus so that we might avoid the horrors of hell. God wants everyone to follow Jesus so that they'll avoid hell. But there was more pain for God's people, and that's the third verse I read out before. Let's have a look at it again and see if it even captures you more. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the royal palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. The king ordered the next generation of leaders to be dragged into his palace. What's he going to do with them? Is he going to torture them? What else could he possibly want to do to them? Well, we find out some important clues in the next verse. Select only strong, healthy and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning and are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. It seems that the treasures that he brought back from the temple were not just the silver and gold. He brought back the cream of the crop, next generation leaders, and now he's taking them to the palace to be trained, not tortured, but trained. They were going to be trained in everything to do with the language and literature of Babylon. They were going to be indoctrinated, these upcoming leaders. And it's kind of extra sad, isn't it? 
Because it's one thing to see the destruction of the temple, which stood for the very presence of God amongst his people. But for now, the next generation, the future of the nation, to be brought in and systematically and deliberately indoctrinated with the new doctrine of the new nation. It's heartbreaking. Because, you know, change the language of people and you change the way they think. And if they change the way they think, maybe they can change their hearts. Will he? Well, let's find out more. Verse 5, we read that the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years and then they'd enter the royal service. They were going to be given the special best food from the king's kitchen. The best specially scientifically designed superfoods. And they were there so that they would help these future leaders be the best possible future leaders they could be. And it was going to happen for three years. Three years of boot camp. But then they'd be changed men. Now, in one sense, it's nice to see that these guys were given a fresh start and they were given a second chance, even in the middle of a pagan world that should have just wiped them out, really. I mean, they could have just been executed like all the others in Jerusalem, of course. But instead, they ended up with a traineeship, with a world leader, with all the resources needed to bring out their best. But how would they respond? Well, now we see the names of the four of these men who will feature so strongly in the rest of this chapter and coming chapters. Verse 6, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. There are the four names. But don't hold on to them too preciously because something's about to change. Verse 7, the chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. Well, that's nice. It'll help them sort of fit in a bit more when they're hanging out with their Babylonian friends. Nothing wrong with that, really, is it? But the problem is, Changing their name tried to wipe out their heritage. They were trying to stamp out the old culture of the conquered people. But more than that, they were trying to wipe out the memory of the Lord God. Because all of those four names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, all in their original language mention God in one way or the other. See, the L stands for God. And the R at the end is actually Yah from Yahweh. All those names had God or the Lord as kind of embedded in who they were. And now, in a, in a final masterstroke, even their names were going to be changed. And so Daniel, which originally meant God is my judge, he's got a new name, Belteshazzar, which either means O Lady Ishtar, protect the king. Or it means, may Marduk protect his life. It's not Yahweh, it's Ishtar or Marduk. They were doing everything they possibly could to wipe from the face of the earth any memory of the Lord and Jerusalem. 
What would you do if you were one of those upcoming leaders, part of this project to re-engineer history? Would you go along with it? Or would you fight it? Would you agree to the process of indoctrination? Or would you push against it? Would you rebel against it, even if it might cost your life? What did Daniel do? Verse 8. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. First thing we see is that he doesn't want to defile himself. He doesn't want to make himself unclean. He, he thinks that eating the king's food in some way will make him unholy. And I've got to say, it is a pretty gutsy move. He's lucky to have had his life spared at all, and now he's complaining about the food. <laughs> but Daniel thinks that being holy is important. Good on Daniel. He's a real hero in so many ways. Because ironically, the very reason that he and his mates are in Babylon is because all the other people back in Jerusalem originally didn't care about holiness at all. They just wanted to bow down to other gods. They wanted to make sacrifices to other deities. They built their own idols and they bowed down to them. And yet Daniel and his friends say, no, we are determined to be holy. So what will be the return on their requests? Verse 9. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. How good is this? <laughs> See, even though the people are trying to extinguish the true Lord God from people's memories, the Lord God is still in control of everything. And even the attitudes... The unseen attitudes of the chief of staff, the Lord is behind all of that. Who rules, really? The God of Daniel. And so instead of criticising Daniel's food refusal, the chief of staff, he shares his honest concerns. In verse 10 he says, I'm afraid of my Lord the King, who's ordered that you eat this food and wine. Because if you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age... I'm afraid the king will have me beheaded. Well, this chief of staff took his job very seriously because it seems that a, a poor performance review would lead him to experience a reduction in the headcount. And so Daniel chatted to the dietitian. He spoke with the, the attendant who'd been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. And he said, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. And at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. It's a little bit of a gamble, isn't it? I mean, was Daniel also a bit of a dietitian? Did he kind of know that getting off the wine and the big meats is going to be a thing that's going to give him super energy? Don't know. But it was nonetheless a risky strategy. But the incredible thing is that the attendant agreed. And verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who'd been eating the food assigned by the king. Who rules really? The God of Daniel. 
And as a result, verse 16, after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. They would forever receive the vegetarian option. Daniel's choice showed his commitment to holiness. He's in a world far, far away from Jerusalem, but he's still true to the Lord. You'd think he'd be crazy to stay committed to a God who appears to have failed. I mean, you want to see, how's it going for Yahweh and his people? Just have a little look over there in Jerusalem. See what it looks like now. How does he look like he's going? Not so well. And yet Daniel doesn't give up. What a hero. You know, we can be very easily tempted to give up on God, especially as our world tries to squeeze him out of every bit of life. But he is the God who rules, really. But before we move on, I wonder if we might stop and just think, what was it about the food that he didn't like or that he thought was going to be unholy? Interesting. Some people say that it might be food sacrificed to idols. Don't think it can be that because the Babylonians sacrificed everything to idols, including the wine and the veggies, so it's not going to be that. Maybe it might have been a kosher thing, unclean foods perhaps, but that wouldn't affect the wine. So how, how do we understand this? Well, as Andrew Reid says in his great little commentary, it's a bit like the saying that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, if you accept someone's hospitality, then they might expect you to then pay them back later, you know, in one way or another. Someone takes you out, oh, I should take you out to lunch, and then a week or two later, oh, mate, um, just ring it up for a favour if I can. But there's even more than that. Uh, there's some evidence that in that culture, you'd create a covenant relationship with a king if you shared food from his table. And in fact, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 26, especially in other translations, there's another reference using the same words which points to that direction. But the point of the matter of this, that in eating this lunch, eating this food, it showed that he was affirming what the king believed and he wasn't going to do that. We in Australia today are living, as it were, in Babylon. And we also would be wise to follow Daniel's example by being worthy citizens in the land and yet not defiling ourselves. So how, do we, how does that work? What does it look like for Christians today? Well, it, it's a little bit like how Jesus prayed for us in John 17. He says to his father, I have given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. In other words, Jesus is saying we should be in the world, but not of the world. We're not to be taken out of Babylon, but while we're here, we need to be holy by following God's word. And I've got to say, I think this is something that's really hard to get right as Christians. Because I know that it's so much safer to immerse ourselves in Christian community and to kind of rid ourselves to the, from the sinful influence of the world. Which is why I can see an interesting attraction to the life of a monk 
monastic kind of living. I can kind of see how it's sort of good to be away from all of the sinful stuff of the world and, and just with other strong believers in God. Uh, I, I experienced a little bit of that in my years of theological training at Moore College when my family and I lived in a house next to another house with people from Moore College next to another house. And in fact, we all had a shared backyard with a playground and it was just this little kind of slice of heaven, kind of, when the kids were well behaved. And we get a bit of that today with camps and conferences. You know, you go away for a weekend or a week or you go on a mission for two weeks and it's like, wow, we've got this special bond together. We're not around with all those who would from kind of Babylon. We've got a bit of a slice of Jerusalem in a way. But the problem is that if we stick with that, we end up neglecting the opportunities to be a light to the world. Another example of this is Christian education. On the one end of the scale is homeschooling. The other end of the scale is public education. And somewhere in the middle are the Christian and Anglican schools. I can see good arguments for all of these educational options. So I can continue to be all your friends, which is nice. But I also see good examples of where parents wisely plug holes in their child's Christian education by involving their kids in extracurricular activities. For example, a homeschooled child can join a sporting team or something like Scouts so that they can engage with people who don't know Jesus and the homeschooling networks. And likewise, a person who's a child in a school with mainly unbelievers, um, their parents can make sure they're fully engaged in youth group and encourage them to go to lunchtime group and go on camps in holidays and things like that as well. It's good to sort of think, where are there ways in which we can engage ourselves and our children, where that's the case, with the world? Uh, for me, that's the reason I joined the RFS. Uh, apart from really enjoying the opportunity to serve there, it's a great way for me to connect with people who are not from within the church, because when you're a church minister, you tend to do a fair bit of that. Um, what about you? Where do you sit with all of this? Are you around many Christians during the week? Are you around many non-Christians during the week? Are you a light to the world? But the biggest challenge of all is to be like Daniel in Babylon. Or as Jesus prayed for us, we need to be in the world but still holy. Let me give you another example to think about. What would happen if you're invited to attend a same-sex wedding? What if you don't agree with what they're doing, but you're one of their only Christian friends or family members? Uh, you know you need to be training with the Babylonian king, to use that analogy. But how can you make sure you don't eat the food from his table, to follow through the analogy? Well, I'd love to hear your answers over brunch, and that's why I've given the chew on this question today as being, what are some examples of when we should decline to eat the king's food? And I'd love to hear what you think about that scenario as well. Well, having refused to eat from the food of the king, we see that the true and living God blessed them, and he also gave them some special, apt special abilities, verse 17. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. Uh, these guys were really good at their books and really wise. And Daniel had the ability to interpret dreams. 
Uh, I often think of this verse a little bit like James Bond movies. In the early parts of the James Bond, Q goes there and he gives out all of these special little tools and you wonder, why would you possibly need a shoe that can double up as a machine gun? Anyway, we'll wait and see. And then later on you think, there it is, there it is, there it is. I think we're seeing that very thing here without too much of a spoiler alert as Daniel is given the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. But then as the chapter comes to a close, there's more evidence of the gifts that God gave these men. Verse 18, when the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. What's going to happen? Well, the king talked with them. And no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. And whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. They're not just twice as smart, they're ten times as smart. I don't know how you measure the capability in balanced judgment and wisdom, but whatever it was, they were ten times the others. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And it's because... The true and living God is at work. And I think this is another reason we can be such a blessing to unbelievers when we share in their lives. Um, Christians still do dumb things, but we have the Spirit of God living in us, and that makes us different. Or as they sometimes say, we can be good different. And I think that's exactly what it was like for Daniel and his mates before the king of Babylon. And then in the final verse, we read that Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. In other words, he served the king of Babylon till 539 BC, which was 70 years after the exile. Why is that important? Well, remember in Jeremiah chapter 25, I read it much earlier. Verse 11 said, this entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel and her neighbouring lands will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But there's another verse after that in Jeremiah chapter 25. Verse 12 says, Then after the 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins, says the Lord, and I will make the country of the Babylonians a wasteland forever. Who rules, really? King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon would like to think that he's the true ruler, wouldn't he? But it's Daniel's God who really rules. The Lord used Nebuchadnezzar like a puppet. Or as it says in Jeremiah 25, his deputy. Oh, put a badge on you, you know. I'm the Lord, you're my deputy. The superpower was merely God's deputy. And the same remains true today of our superpower rulers. They wouldn't want to see themselves that way, but the Lord does. That's why Romans 13 tells us that everyone should submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Even the terrifying king of Babylon is subject to the sovereign rule of the true king, which it means that when it seems that God is weak, we know he's strong. When it seems that God's gospel is stupid, we know it's true. And when the world seems against us, we can know that God is for us. Amen. We're going to sing about that now.